0: We are in the ninth uh, chapter <clears throat> in our study of Revelation. I, I think this is true. All of you have a copy of this. Is that correct? Somebody mm-hmm. mm-hmm. not? So not. As a reminder, and I, I will try to do this. I think every time we get together. As a reminder, um, the chronology. Remember, chronology means like a timeline of the book of Revelation and what we are now studying, beginning with chapter 6 on through, really, the end of the book. This is kind of the timeline that we're to follow. This is how we're to think about it. Once the throne room scene, chapters 4 and 5, are behind us, we're now on earth, and this final judgment of God, before his kingdom comes, this is what happens. And the focal point, the focal point are these judgments. Now, and this is the value, it seems to me, of this. There are a series of parentheses. We have already done one, chapter 7, which tells us the witness of Christ during this period that Jesus calls the tribulation is 144,000. We briefly discussed that. Now today, in a few minutes, as we get through the sixth trumpet, we're going to go on another one of these little bunny trails, another one of these parentheses. And we go back to the throne room of God, And we also hear about the two witnesses. And that's why it's really important what, what, as the Holy Spirit is inspiring this and as he is seeing these visions, it's important for us to remember this because the chapter 11 is asking, excuse me, I say, answering another question. Well, who else is the witness to Christ during the tribulation? And it's these two witnesses. And we, we have much to say about them. So, I think for now, that's about all we need to say. So we're kind of just about ready to finish chapter 9, uh, which is the, the end of, well, I should say almost the end of the trumpet judgment. So we've gone through the seal judgments. We've gone through almost all of the trumpet judgments. Now we're going to have a little uh, bunny trail after we finish chapter 9. So that's just a review. Everybody with me? Okay. So we left off uh, last time, as I recall, so about in the middle of the chapter, chapter 9, which was the blowing of the fifth trumpet. <clears throat> and uh, if you're following your notes, it would be on page 22. But it's the blowing of the fifth trumpet, the first of three woes, and that was introduced to us again last week, too. But the image here, the picture here, the nature here of this sixth, uh, fifth trumpet are these locusts? And as I explained, and I, I, I say this in the uh, in the notes, but th- this is probably to be understood as a figure, a figure of speech, a metaphor of the demonic power, the demonic hosts that are unleashed during this period of time. And so, um, be, and part of the reason for that is they are they come out of the great abyss of the bottomless pit, verse one. And the head of these locusts, in verse 11, is Abaddon, Apollyon, destroyer. These are names of the evil. So it would seem reasonable that that's who they are. And in verse 7 through 10, they're described again. And please note all the similes. And the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold. Their faces like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women. Teeth like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. The sounds of their wings was like the sounds of chariots, many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is the power to hurt men for five months. So, the nature of this (coughs) terrible uh, fifth trumpet is it's going to last for five months but they do not kill, they just torment. And again, I I think it is best, and I try to defend this in in the note, I think it's best to see this as demonic torment. And uh, I think the final reason why that makes sense is verse 11. They have a king, uh, a leader, uh, a commander, to translate it either way. The angel of the abyss... And the abyss, again, we've read that before. That's that, that underworld central location of the demonic hosts. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, it's Apollyon. In Matthew 24:21, Jesus says this again. He's answering the questions of his disciples about the end of the age, the signs of the end of the age. He said, as this begins to unfold, it will be unlike anything ever in the history of the world. I think the fifth trumpet trumpet fits into that kind of a description. There has never been anything like this. Where this kind of demonic torment of humanity, which lasts for five months, but yet it does not kill. It only torments. So the the Bible, in this passage particularly, there are references to this as figurative references in the book of Joel, J-O-E-L, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. and But there's not a lot of specific details. So we're kind of left, in a way, with some uncertainty about what this is going to be like. I mean, in terms of, I mean, are they going to be literally stinging human beings? I mean, it's, it's just hard to know exactly how do we apply it, because the, the images of a locust, a locust and a scorpion both are used here in the in the descriptive uh, similes to to try to depict who they are and what they do but what they're going to look like exactly and what the nature of their torment it just is going to be horrible one final point which is a reminder this also fits with the day of the lord language in the old testament this day of the Lord, the pouring out of the judgment of God on his planet. So um, th- do you have any questions about that? I mean, it's, this, is, this is one of the, the dimensions of the trumpets. It's very, very hard for me, at least personally, to say I know exactly what he's saying here. It's really hard because I'm not sure I do. That's filled with all these similes, like horses. You know what I mean? It's not horses. It's not like a, uh, the crown of, of, of gold, but it's it's that kind of descriptive. So you try to picture it in your mind. It's really, really difficult to do that. And if you if you go online and you know go on the internet and, and you say I want images of Revelation nine, you're gonna have all these fantastic art, artist descriptions, and it's just hard to know exactly. But I think the bottom line is this: this is horrific torment of unbelievers.
1: I think this is some kind of repudiation of their rejection of the Lord.
0: I think so. I think so. I mean,
1: the others touch them physically and touch their food supply and other things. That's this that's is right. a spiritual dimension to
0: this. Yes. And 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 or physical. But it's it's a torment. I mean it's a torment that is really really hard to imagine and get a mind picture, word picture in your mind of what this is really going to be like. Well, okay, got Well, good at yeah, one hand. Well, i thinking. You so. know, it's a. It, in, in death flees from them. It's going to be a tough five months because, even if somebody was going to try to take their life, they couldn't. Exactly. I think that's how we are to understand that. That's yeah. Right. So and it's the inference seems to be that they're going to want to. Yeah. Ed, you had your hand up, and then Daryl. Yeah. <clears throat> Last week,
1: didn't we talk about these were demons coming out?
0: These are I believe this is demonic so
1: why would demons attack non-believers, which would basically be their followers. Not the believer the, why would a demon attack a
0: non-believer? <clears throat> um it's that's a really good question, except <clears throat> remember something Satan does not like you. (laughs) And Satan and all of his minions delight in attacking both God directly and God indirectly. And one of the indirect ways that seems to delight them are attacking God's image bearers, believers or unbelievers. Tormenting, harming, hurting the human race, both mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually is their primary aim. And so I'm saying that because it it is a demonstration, I think, of the monstrosity of the evil that is going to be unleashed. And there's one other point. <clears throat> the Bible speaks, and we studied this a number of months ago, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, of the restrainer. And if you remember, I don't know if you were in the class at that time, but the restrainer, Paul says, when the restrainer is removed then evil, I'll paraphrase it, then evil goes crazy. And so, Ed, I believe it's to under, be understood clearly from Second Thessalonians 2 that the restrainer is removed. I, my own opinion is that's the church, the rapture has occurred, the indwelling spirit in the believer's lives is, 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 has been removed. So there's nothing holding evil back. That's why in seven years, which is the length of this period of time, the human race almost self-destructs both in terms of what they do as well as what is done to them. So um, I wouldn't want you to have the image that Satan and his dominions, his minions, the, the demons, are really really uh, bent on having your best interests at heart. They do not. And at any moment, at any time, and especially with unbelievers, they seek to destroy everything that is important to God. Whether it's the family, whether it's human life, whether it's mental stability, whether it's emotional health, they seek to destroy all that. Daryl.
2: question that I have is, with, with all this taken into consideration, for those who are, are mid-trib uh, or post-trib, what, what is the logic that they maintain for such a position?
0: Well, because I'm a pre-trib person, I agree with you. It's hard for me, uh, more so even with the post-trib person. I mean, to, I can understand the case for the mid-trib. I, I, I don't think it's correct, but I can understand the case for that. And they, they separate some of the language to say that that's when the church is removed. But uh, it is um, it is really difficult to understand how you can... Really hold to a post church, uh, posttrib position where the church has to go through all this, because the the Bible again and again and again and again that same passage in Second Thess, uh, two, that the church, you believers, saints are not destined for wrath. You, you, God is not going to. Uh, Jesus promised to the church of Philadelphia, and he says that then broadened to all, I will deliver you from the time of torment and tribulation. It's the language that's used there, so. But I, I agree with you. It's really hard for me to see believers here. And one of the most compelling reasons for that, by believers, I mean the church, because there will be people that will come to Christ with 144,000 and so on. But it is, again, what I said in response to Ed's question and comment, the restrainer. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, in the next verse, Paul uses the pronoun he, when he is removed. So the restrainer is not just some impersonal force, it's a person. And that it seems reasonable from all that he says to conclude that person is the restraining influence of God's spirit, and you just have just have to think about think. And this is how I've this is that's the main reason why I believe in the preacher of brush. That is the main reason, because as where and the Bible says this so crystal clear with crystal clear that wherever believers are, God still blesses. The salt and light influence of believers, God, God honors that in common grace blessing. You, you know, I mean, one of the good examples is where, when Joseph is in the house of Pharaoh, God blesses. Uh, when, when Daniel is in the center of the Babylonian Empire, God is still in his common grace blessing. But think if all believers and the Holy Spirit who indwells from in taken out of the world, what will be restraining evil? Nothing. There'll be nothing to restrain evil. That's why I think that's so significant, because God, this is the final aspect. God God takes the church out, the restraining influence is gone, and in so many ways, just the natural consequences of evil just work themselves out. And both God directly and indirectly is just permitting the human race to virtually self-destruct. That's why it only takes seven years. You know, it's taken us 5,500 years to get to this point, but God continues in his grace to restrain. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, John says the spirit of Antichrist is always here. Then he talks about the person of Antichrist that comes at the end, but the spirit of Antichrist is always here. It's always among us. And before I came to, to know the Lord, I had the spirit of Antichrist in me. I didn't want to obey him. I didn't want to walk with him. I, I just, I utterly and totally, intentionally and willfully rebelled against everything he stood for. And so that spirit is always here, but just think if, if God lifts the restraining power, just think of, that's what we're seeing described here. So I, I echo completely what Darrell was saying. Somebody else? I
2: had one, but I, I believe it's answered. Are you sure? Between
0: the two,
1: yeah.
0: Okay. Right.
1: You know, I think you really put your finger on very important. I
0: rarely do that. So I can't <laughs> wait to hear, I hear what I said. Do it all the time,
1: and that's why we really come. Um, <laughs> is that you said that uh, Satan hates humanity. That's right. And man was made in God's image. And maybe that's part of why he hates. But I think in evangelizing others or sharing our faith with non-believers, non-believers may think there's someone in their court. And if they're faced with a reality that Satan actually hates them, then what they think is doing what they want to do is really playing into the hands of Satan. And sealing their fate. Absolutely. Always redeemable, but headed in the wrong direction. And um, and I, I don't. I think a lot of people who don't know Christ as Savior think, "Hey, I'm doing it my way." When <laughs> yeah. in essence they're doing it the way that Satan yeah. wants them to do it, yeah. because he hates them and he wants to see them in hell, join him. An eternal punishment. And that, I mean, to me, that's really, really meaningful. There is no ally in the sinner's court hmm. other than Christ.
0: No, that's right. That's exactly right. No, That's right. Thanks for pointing that out. I
1: mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, is that? I mean, I. just... No, absolutely. I that think right? that is
0: absolutely Satan. And I may have mentioned it here in the, in our class, but. The Bible makes it very clear to us that the cross and resurrection of Jesus was the defeat of Satan. He makes that clear. Satan's done. So, and as we've talked before, God continues to delay the, the return of his son so that more people can come to know faith. The population of heaven can increase. So then you say, well, why, if Satan is defeated, he knows he's defeated. He, know his, he knows that his doom is, is sealed. He will spend eternity in the lake of fire. You would think, why does he just give up? Because he's going to lose. And the, the, the scriptures seem to say to us very clearly that Satan's goal now, that he knows he's defeated, is to take as many image bearers of God with him to hell. That's how evil he is. The opposite
1: of why crazy. E- exactly,
0: is. exactly. And so Satan, even though he knows he's defeated... He says, I can still hurt God by taking as many as his image bearers to hell with me. Which is just, you know, because I kind of, and I, I guess it's right to think that way, I guess kind of think if, if you know you're going to lose, you know, as we often say, cut your losses and just give in. Yeah. But that's not Satan. He's not going to cut his losses. He is, his goal is, he's so evil. His goal is: I will take as many of the image bearers to God with me, and that's—I mean—that's his strategy. It's, and and he's—you know—he's deceiving, and we read about that earlier in chapter twelve. Um, excuse me, we will read about it in chapter twelve. He is a deceiver. He's a liar from the beginning. He's the master of, of deception. I mean, that's <clears throat> Satan, and he. Uh, I believe, and of course, C.S. Lewis and his wonderful book. Sort of comments on this in this allegory, which is what he's doing in that book that Satan unbelievers and believers, but he studies them where's your weakness what's the nature? What approach do I take with you? Do I take the rational approach or do I take the emotional approach or the worldview and the culture in which you live? you know if you're in Haiti or the Dominican Republic the 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 manifestations of Satan and evil are everywhere it's not hidden. But in the United States, it's hidden. Because the United States is basically secular and very materialistic. And that's not, you know, we just, well, there's, no, there's no evidence of Satan anywhere. What are you talking about? There's an evil one. Well, Satan, as Lewis says, in the Western rational world, you, your strategy is you want to convince them you don't exist. Satan wants to convince him that we don't exist. The evil That, you know, basically everybody's good, and there's just a, you know, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's fine. Little tweaks here and there. And that's, man, that's sellable. Yeah, good. And yet you have all the expressions of evil everywhere around us. I mean, evil is everywhere around us. But not the demonstrable, clear, satanic evil where people are bowing down and worshiping Satan. You know, see a see some of, it, but not much.
1: And he's attacking Christians too. Oh yeah. Right? I, mean, I just, mean, he's after everybody. He's after
0: understand. every his his goal once you're a believer, his goal, he knows you're sealed. You belong to the Lord. But he can make a mess of you. He can destroy your witness. He can destroy everything that God stands for and then people will mock Christianity, you know. There have been a lot of examples of that. You know, it's just, and it just, it continues to perplex me. But Second Thess- Peter 3 is just such of a help to me. I just can't, Lord, I just don't understand this. Why are you allowing so much evil? You know, I, you know, and, and God says through Peter, God is continuing to delay so that more will come to faith. In the midst of all the horrific examples of evil, God patiently keeps proclaiming the message so that more, and I always put it, he's increasing the population of heaven. But the Bible says in that last person comes to faith, then Jesus comes back.
2: This is a real bunny trail. But I just, the question comes up again and again and I never get it asked. The question is, uh, God is omnipresent. Yeah. How can the devil really study
0: each one of us around this circle, and at what time does he do it? Because if he's not not on the present, then he has to go from me to Fred to yeah. whoever. How how does well, and right, do and I I when I said Satan, I I I really mean as well all of those who serve him, the demons, the, a third of the angels that joined his rebellion. And the Bible does not give us any indication of what that finite number is. But it would seem reasonable. It's a pretty large number. <laughs> so, you know, Darrell, I think um, the 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 demonic hosts are very, very present. And I think the indicator of that, among other places in Scripture, is in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because you war not against flesh and blood and bones, but against rulers and authorities and powers in heavenly places. So uh, the offensive and defensive nature of each daily preparation for the day, so to speak, is we're aware that there are evil forces out there that seek to do nothing but destroy us. Harm our witness, harm us. But then the Bible also teaches, uh, you know, we call it a guardian angel, but there are three passages in Scripture which seem to indicate that there is angelic protection for those that belong to Christ. So that's that's good. So, you know, but it's that 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 world we don't see, the, the cosmic spiritual world where there's battle. Remember, we studied this in Daniel 10. Daniel had been praying, it's been 21 days, and he ain't no answer. And finally the angel shows up and says, I'm sorry it took twenty one days, but I was battling the Prince of Persia. And it was so severe I had to call Michael. I mean, that's just, oh my goodness, for a moment, we just lift the window of that other spiritual warfare that's going on. And, uh, you know, when we get to heaven, um, well maybe it won't even be important, but when we get to heaven, I think we'll have a greater understanding of how the Lord protected us during our lives. The number, I again, I don't know, but I would think we would maybe know that, just just the ways in which, both physically as well as spiritually, just the ways in which the Lord... I, every morning when Peggy and I pray, we pray, uh, We this is what we pray, that the Lord put a protective hedge on our children, our grandchildren, on our friend, you know, our church, just that protective hedge to guard them. And uh, and regardless of what happens in our lives, we have to believe that that, that Jesus is doing that. Even when our loved ones get sick or an accident, because of God is still, from the eternal perspective, protecting them, guarding them for his purposes. Well,
2: you know that there were a third
0: of the angels that went down with him. Mm-hmm. So however the total is, yeah. God has two-thirds. Two, God has two-thirds, that's he right. Two-thirds. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... what? You're welcome. The trumpet number six begins in verse 13, and there is a great deal uh, about this that is hard. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One thing to the sixth angel had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Okay, now that takes you back to Revelation 7. We've read that before. The four angels. Now, that means, this is really important, that means they have been restraining evil. We read that in chapter 7. They have been, this is one of God, God is restraining now. And those four angels are now released. And for the four angels who had been prepared for for the hour and day and month and year were released. Now, verse 15, and I mentioned this in the note, that's really, really important. God is controlling time. God knows exactly when he's going to do this. And so this restraining influence is removed. And it's the definite article, the hour, the day, the month, the year. So that they might kill a third of mankind. Who's the they? Those in verse 16. So, here is a connection some people make, and I'll get to that in a minute. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the the vision the horses and those who sat upon them. The riders had blasphates, color fire, and hyacinth and brimstone. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of the mouths proceed fire, smoke, and brimstone. And a third of mankind was killed by these plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of the mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and the tails like serpents, and they've hurt heads, and with them they do harm. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. I'll I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, what is going on here? We see a couple of very key facts. Fact number one is the restraining influence of those four angels is removed by God. So that this powerful force of the number, that's the second key fact, 200 million is released. Now, what some people do, and, and some exegetes and scholars do, is they connect us with Daniel chapter 11, verse 44, which is talking about the power of the East coming in to the Middle East. They had been restrained, but now they're coming into the Middle East into the Valley of Jezreel, into the campaign of Armageddon. Now, see, this is the, this is the challenge of where we are in our course so far. Mm-hmm. We, we are looking at the chronology of these judgments. We have yet to be introduced to Antichrist in the book of Revelation. We have, been yet, we have yet to be introduced to the beast, which is what he's called. We're going to get to him in the next chapter, or in chapter 11, excuse me. So what I'm saying, and I'm, I'm probably confusing you here, this two, fact number one is that restraining influence of these four angels holding at the Euphrates River is removed so that this army of 200 million can come. And it tells us, that's fact number two, this number's 200 million. It's a phenomenal number today. Think of what it was in the first century to mention a number like that. In verse 17, in verse 18, in verse 19 just describes militarily what an army like that could do. The devastation that an army like that could bring. So what I'm trying to get you to do is take the figurative language and distill it down to something simple. This great army from the East is coming into the Middle East and it's just describing the devastation an army that size brings, and that's what's described for us. But uh,
2: my my Bible says release the four angels. Right. I guess I don't know who's releasing.
0: Them. Well, it, it it's uh, it, the sixth angel is being. Talked to by one saying to the, we don't know who that one is. Is it God? Is it the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus? Or is it just another angelic being? That's a very good question, Woody. I didn't mention that. But there is one who says to the sixteenth, before you blow the trumpet, release these four angels who are restraining evil at the Euphrates River. As they are released, then this army can come. Across, but you're you're right. I didn't comment on that he is either God or it's another angel.
1: Is there any significance to the Euphrates? Because a lot of uh, if you go back to Genesis, uh, it, it's oh, that, by some scholars that that might be the center of the origin of man.
0: Oh well, yeah. I mean that's it's the Mesopotamian Valley, Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, and the Euphrates River. It's, it's a very, very important natural barrier. It has always been the barrier that prevents armies from the east moving into the Middle East. It was, it's very significant. It's at flood stage. It's a huge river, very difficult to navigate. And um, it would seem as if it is just telling us that that restraining influence is removed. Now the armies can move into. And it's going to tell us later on that the Euphrates has dried up. So, I mean, I'm trying not to confuse, and I think this is really hard, but if you take the facts, the restraining influence is removed, you have an army of 200 million, and then you have in verse 17, 18, and 19, just a description using a lot of figurative language, what an army like that's going to do, the devastation an army like that is going to bring. Okay? Did I lose you, or are you with me? Thank you. That's good. (laughs) Verse 20 is an absolutely astonishing verse. It gives you an indication that God's grace is still at work. Because it says, those who are not killed by these plagues did not repent. What's the inference you can draw? God is giving them an opportunity to repent. In other words, that's one of the things, and we will see one coming up, you will see it's going to be very clear that it's in several chapters later. God gives them a chance to repent again, but there will be no more chances. But here that's not here. So what I'm saying is to you saying to you is these horrific judgments, God is still giving them an opportunity to repent. That's his grace. When you agree, that's his grace. He's giving them an opportunity to repent. But the text doing. says they do not repent. So <laughs> as not to worship demons, the idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood. Now the scene here, they do not repent of the murders or the sorceries or the immorality or the theft. There is absolutely no change in their behavior. They do not repent. You 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 are to I think draw the conclusion uh, correctly. This incredible pouring out of the wrath of God, but he's still giving people a chance to repent. Turn to me. It's still available. But you have this picture, which is the correct one, of this incredible hardness of people's hearts and their unwillingness to repent. So it's, it's, it's a pretty ugly time. Oh, absolutely.
1: So, I mean, the focus here geographically is the Euphrates River. But this is clearly has to be a worldwide phenomenon. All right. So whatever really is released there happens in North America, South America, Europe, Africa, or not.
0: <clears throat> I don't know uh, all the other things we've read, been reading about, yes. Here, I, I'm not sure about that, Jim, because of the specific geographic marker of the Euphrates. And so the army, let's just infer, I think correctly, but not everybody agrees with that, that this parallels what is being discussed in Daniel chapter 11, the campaign of Armageddon. As the armies of the world gather in the Valley of Jezreel, which is where Armageddon is. And so it seems to be just an indicator, a marker, that this is relating to that part of the world. And they're from Asia geographically, they're coming from Asia, they're not coming from Alaska, they're coming from Asia, and they're coming across the, the, as there are, there's now, there are two major road systems that have been built by the Chinese across Tibet and across the Himalayan Mountains that would enable an army to move into the Middle East today. That, that never has existed in human history. I'm telling you that only just, that it's possible for this to occur. And so it's just t- and so the devastation then of that army as it's moving and as it moves into the Middle East, the loss of life and the devastation is going to be unprecedented. But an army of 200 million. Now, I'm saying this only for this reason. Mao Tung. now he's been dead for quite a while, but remember him? He's the founder of Communist China, leader of Communist China for many years. He used to brag, I have an army of 200 million. He would brag that over and over and over again. And it is not unimaginable because he's dead, but it's not unimaginable to amass an army coming out of Asia of two hundred million. That's not an unimaginable thing today, with the population of China, which you know the most populated country of the world, and then India, which is very close in population to China. You just put that, let alone Japan and Korea and all those other. I mean, it is no difficulty in any way imagining an army of 200 million. I mean, that's an astronomical number for an army. But an army coming out of Asia, that's no longer an unimaginable number. To put so I mean, will there.
1: these people tend to line up more along on the evil side readily because... Yes.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, yes. Just <laughs> categorically, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, again, if you just think about what we... Discussed now quite a few times that the restraining work of God's Spirit and the presence of the Church and believers in significant numbers is gone, so that there is nothing restraining evil anymore. It's just uh, you, I keep whenever I study this, I keep reminding myself: remember, the restraining, the restraining power of God has been lifted, and that's just uh, this and and God. Well, anyway, it's, it's just hard. It's so hard to imagine what this is going to be like, but the text is clear. This is what's going to happen. All right, let's look at chapter 10, and if we have time to crack into 11. Chapter 10, and if you notice your chart, so cha- it'll be up here at the top now. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 is a parenthesis, and so it's an important parenthesis. So we're breaking the cycle, the timeline cycle, We'll see the last trumpet blown in just a minute. Well, by just a minute, I mean in a couple of weeks. But, but I mean in terms of our timeline. So in chapter 10 now, and this is a curious chapter. I even asked the question in, in your note, why is this here? But it's a short chapter. But let me read it. And let's just, let's just get a sense of what's going on here. And I saw another strong angel... Coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and face like the sun, and feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. Some of your translations might have a little scroll. And he placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And the seven peel, as a, when the seven peals of thunder spoken, I was about to write, and I heard the voice from heaven saying, Seal up these things which are seven peals of thunder spoken. Do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing in the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now that is, that's not unusual even in America, but in the ancient world, that was the signal you're about to take an oath or a vow. The content of that is verse 6. And I swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, earth and the things in it, sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. What in the world is going on here? This is an interlude. It's like a small bunny trail, but reminding us of several things. That God is in control of all this, and that God is about to finish his program for planet Earth. He's about to bring it to a completion. Verse 6, there's no delay. Verse 7, it is finished. And so this angel takes the oath, takes the vow that there'll be no delay any longer. That the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. What prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets, Daniel, Jesus and his prophetic messages, Paul and his prophetic messages. What's he telling us? Everything that God prophesied to come about, is about to be completed. Though the the angel, this strong angel, some suggest it might be Jesus, I'm not sure here, but Jesus is rarely ever called an angel. So we would think this is maybe Michael or one of the arch. but anyway, the point is that he's announcing something. Everything God had predicted he was going to do in the prophet's, don't stumble over it. Verse six. That's very simple to understand what he's saying in verse 7. Everything that all the prophetic scriptures have said are about to be completed. That's important for us, that God has a plan. God is working this plan. God is accomplishing what he said he was going to accomplish. And it is almost done. There's no delay. It is almost done. So it's like in, in the middle of, of these Just horrendous judgments. The angel reminds us. God is in control. God is accomplishing his purposes. And it's almost over. That's a word of hope. It's a word of encouragement. But it's also a word that reminds us. Things are not out of control. God is still accomplishing his purposes. And it's almost over.
2: You have it in
0: your notes. God will never abandon yep. His creation. that's right, that's right. So I mean, it's just it's it's a comforting reminder of the Lord and His purposes and His sovereignty, and that all that had been prophesied, preached to His to His servants, the prophets, is about to be completed. That's that's really important.
2: You no, know, if we were there. We might think, he we're toast.
0: Yes, exa- well, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then
2: it's good to hear that he's not
0: going
1: to abandon Right. So is this a message then to, to those of us who are reading this and observing what's going to come? To the 144,000 and the others that have come over the Lord during this period, that they're caught up in all of this?
0: Or it's both. it, is it is it's...
1: to the... Unbelieving world, experiencing
0: or all of that. Well, it's definitely, definitely a message of comfort and hope for you and me as we read this and study it and understand. And, and it's that verse seven is such an important verse. But also to the 144,000 believers during the, tri- I don't think there's any doubt about it. They will be reading this. This will be a, the Book of Revelation is going to be a, a book of a great comfort to those who come to know Christ during the tribulation period. And it's just a reminder that I told you this was going to happen. My prophets have told you again and again and again about the day of the Lord, and it's going to be accomplished and so on. And it's going to be It's almost done. Whether unbelievers will be reading it or not, and I i don't know. I, I'm a little skeptical that they'll be terribly comforted because we just read, doesn't matter what God does, they're not going to repent. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I don't know about that. But it's a... It's a tremendously important reminder, and, and again, I'll say this about the fourth time, verse 7, God says, Everything I said was going to happen through the prophets is almost done. And that's just, that's really, there's an integral unity to God's word. And it's, it's not disjointed, it's God said, he said he was going to do these things. And it's all wrapped around that day of the Lord language, And that is what he's doing. Now, there's something else that happens here that's curious, but should sound a little familiar if you've studied the Old Testament. It's verse 8, 9, and 10. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking to me, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. That, By the way, that's just the totality of God's creation. That's, that's what that is. I'm seeing the land. Okay. So I'm in verse 8 of chapter 10. Okay. Okay. So now the angel says to John, go take the, the angel told him the book, go take that book. Literally, that biblos, that, that scroll. And I went to the angel telling him to give me a little book. And he said to me, take it, eat it. And I will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Now, here again, if you read a verse like that, verse 9, that sounds strange. But if you've read the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 15, God told Jeremiah to do that. In Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, God said, Ezekiel, do that. In other words... John, this is, this is the point of this. John, you are a prophetic messenger as well. You are writing down and revealing the prophecies. I want you to internalize this, as he said to Jeremiah, and he said to Ezekiel, "You are going to be the messenger of harsh things. In your mouth it's going to be sweet as honey. As you swallow, it's going to be bitter." This is both a sweet and a honey, uh, sweet and a bitter message. You follow me? So uh, maybe you're not following me. Don't think you're following me.
1: Sweet and bitter, and how that's why it's sweet and why it's
0: bitter. Well, it's the Word of God, and it's it's declaring what God is and what He's going to do. That's sweet. That's encouraging, affirming words. But it's a harsh message. It's a message of judgment. So that's bitter and honestly men that's the nature of god's word it's both sweet but it can be bitter now i don't mean bit bitter as an emotion you're bitter to, but i mean bitter in terms of its taste its characteristic Ooh. because the words of judgment are not sweet words they're hard words and that's what john is doing so it's it it's he's act in in in, command, in obeying the command of the angel, he's acting out his role as a prophet. I am taking in God's word. It is sweet, but as I declare it, and it's, it's like bitter, harsh words of judgment. That's exactly what Jeremiah did. That's exactly what Ezekiel did. Both men were instructed to do the same thing. So it's an acting out type object lesson of what the word of God is like. It's both sweet and bitter. It's both comforting and harsh. For those who know the Lord and trust the Lord, it's sweet. For those who will be the object of his judgment, it's harsh. And it's not nice to deliver that twofold message. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it, it was sweet in my mouth as honey when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter, and said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John, you are a prophet too. And you're going to declare things. You're going to prophesy things. That's why you're on Patmos writing all this down. What's John being reminded of? I am a prophet of the living God. Just like Jeremiah was, just like Ezekiel was. That's all, this, that's, all that's going on here, man. It sounds weird, but it isn't weird when you put it in the context of the other prophets of the Old Testament. As God said, I'm about to fulfill all of the prophecies of all the prophets, John, don't forget you're a prophet also. And that's all that's going on in chapter 10. So, why is it here? Why is chapter what's this little short chapter doing in the middle of the book? Well, it's reminding us that what God said he was going to do through all the prophets, he is now doing, and it's almost finished, including John's prophecies in the book of Revelation. It's a reminder and comforting word to John, and it's a reminder of of the words and veracity and truthfulness of God's word to us who are reading this. John is as much a prophet of God as Jeremiah was and Ezekiel was, who both did exactly the same thing John was commanded to do. What's it saying? In terms of prophets, equate Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John. That's what it's saying to us. That's not, okay, I got it. That's not a big deal. I understand. Do you? (laughs) Do you understand? Chapter 10, it's 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 really, it's an important chapter. It's a reminder right in the middle of the book. Okay, some of you have the deer in the headlight looks. I'm not sure you're with me, but I think you're with me. Woody, are you with me? I'm with you. Okay, I mean, it's it's a very encouraging book. Uh, sorry, a very encouraging chapter. It's It's John. John's a prophet. And God is fulfilling his words. And it's almost over. Now, we're just about done for today, because it's about a quarter up. but I want to introduce chapter 11. If you have a chance for next week, read chapter 11, especially, especially the first 14 verses. Verse 15, following the seventh trumpet, but read the first 14 verses. This is about, this is exciting, this is about the two witnesses. This is about the two witnesses that show up in Jerusalem. And in chapter 10, we're introduced to the Antichrist. In chapter 10, we're introduced to the primary antagonist of the two witnesses. And it's the Antichrist. And they is going to tell us, they will teach and preach for three and a half years, and then Antichrist is going to kill them. And then they'll lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and then Jesus is going to resurrect them and take them to heaven. So now for the first time in the book of Revelation, we're now introduced to two of the key players in the Revelation saga the two witnesses and the beast, the Antichrist. And now we're going to start, and it's going to start getting, now we're going to start to get more and more details as to who these main players are. And we're introduced in chapter 11 to the chronology which we haven't seen in the book yet. The chronology, three and a half years, a middle, and another three and a half years. So if you're interested in this, see you next Wednesday, okay? This is really good stuff. Your assignment, chapter 11, 1 through 14. Read about the two witnesses. What do they do? What are some of the key things they have the power to do? And why does the beast kill them? Why does the Antichrist kill him? Which is what we'll look at next. We'll probably spend most of the hour next week just in those 14 verses. It's really important stuff.
1: We'd like to pray for you, Jim. Uh, Thanksgiving, and this is appropriate time to be thankful for uh, General Jesus. Cool, so why? a couple of you guys will just go ahead and pray. we give you thanks for the fact that you seem to
2: be this book of revelation available mm-hmm. to, to us. Mm. It raises more questions and questions in other areas. Um, we see the organization. We see that you are an awesome God mm. worthy of everything that we can do uh, and, and receive from you. Um, what a pleasure. And yeah, thank you, too, for Jim and his willingness to, to enlighten us in regards to um, the truth that we get within these babies.
1: Father, I'd like to echo our thanks and, and appreciation for understanding this work better through uh, Jim sharing it with us. And uh, we thank you and we thank you that we live in our country where we have blessings beyond mm-hmm. what we could ever imagine mm-hmm. in comparison to other worlds to other countries uh, in this world that, that have their own their own struggles and trials and We thank you, Father, for our relatives and our friends. uh, We pray that uh, we would uh, just give thanks to you for those people. And for those who don't know you, we pray, God, that this might be an opportunity to share uh, our thankfulness with uh, those those folks in Christ's name.
0: Lord, I just thank you for each man here, and thank you for the privilege of, of being a part of their lives on Wednesdays for about an hour. Thank you for their willingness and diligence in coming. And we thank you that we live in a country where there's still a national day of Thanksgiving, which we celebrate tomorrow. During the day, as we are with family and friends and just delighting in that special time of of the year, that we might continue to give thanks to you, perhaps very intentionally at the meal or whenever as we gather with friends to just take a few minutes and just thank you for all of the blessings, for life itself, for health, for the country we live in, as well as for the privilege of having a country where there's still freedom of worship and we can enjoy the blessings of liberty. We also thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the most important gift that you've ever given to the human race and that you have given us the opportunity to walk with him in obedience and love and to be instructed and to to take the word of God and apply it to our lives. Thank you for these men. Help us, therefore, to represent you well in all we do and say in Christ's name. Amen. 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 See you next week. Amen.